So what should America's schools do now? Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster with the Delta variant spreading and case numbers way up, particularly among younger Americans. A growing number of schools are worried about safety protections for COVID. There's some talk among some teachers unions about perhaps not having school if the right safety protocols are not in place. Here to talk about that is Aaron Wyth. He is the CEO of Freedom Foundation. They are an organization that tries to battle the power of unions. Aaron, good to have you on board. Isn't this more of a safety issue than a union issue? I don't think so. I think that the, the what we've seen from kids over the last 18 months is that they're largely uh, unaffected by COVID. We have the, we've had this trade-off for the past 18 months with uh, kids' education versus their health and safety. And don't get me wrong, at the start of COVID, I think that none of us really knew uh, what the effects were going to be on children. But now we do. We know that they're largely unaffected by COVID. Certainly, it's a small, small portion that are ever hospitalized from this that get severely sick. So I think it's time to put our kids' education ahead of one of the perceived dangers of COVID. Well, maybe a small percentage, but compared to a year ago, it's a much higher percentage, right? I mean, the Delta variant is much more communicable, is much more dangerous than the original COVID-19. And again, it goes after people who are largely unvaccinated and the people who are not vaccinated yet are people who are younger than 14 years old. So why not at least require masks or all the various safety precautions that teachers and schools and even parents have come to expect? I think that it should ultimately be down to the individual parents on what they want to do with their kids in terms of vaccines, in terms of mask mandates. I think that it should be up to them exclusively, not forced to them by any kind of government. Ultimately, we know the data that's out there right now. Parents know how to how to make informed decisions. I think it's condescending to see the CDC and the government try and mandate things like masks amongst kids that again have a very low susceptibility rate. Uh, for COVID. But if it's uh, condescending for the government to say that they must wear masks, isn't it also condescending for the government to say, you know, you know, we're gonna defund you if you require masks. In other words, that's what's being done in Florida. Republican Governor DeSantis has said that he will defund schools if they have a mask mandate. And I thought conservatives were all about leaving it to local governments, local school boards to decide, not a state capital, not the federal capital to decide. Yeah, I completely agree. It should be down to individual school districts. I think that this is an opportunity for parents and students alike to be looking at what school choice looks like. If you're not happy as a parent in Florida of what your schools are delivering, they should have the ability to go and take those dollars and be able to take their kids into a school that perhaps would provide them the benefits that they're looking for. Just the same way in Washington state, the state that I'm in, very liberal state, you know, they're mandating masks. They've they were preventing our kids from being able Able to go into schools for over a year here in Washington state. Parents should have had the ability then to be able to take their kids out of the public schools that many believe were failing them and be able to take them into schools that could do the job of teaching them during the same time. There is this idea of a possible vaccination. Well, there is a vaccination mandate in several states. There's a possibility that schools will require all teachers and staff and have required them to get vaccines. There's also the possibility that perhaps by the winter time there might be a a mandate for children to get vaccines, just like children have to get vaccines for polio and rubella and measles and mumps. What would be the difference in this case? I think the difference is COVID. COVID isn't rubella. COVID isn't mumps. It's 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 a disease that again, largely amongst kids, has been unaffected. They've been largely unaffected 
uh, by COVID. We know the facts of COVID. We know uh, what has happened over the past 18 months and parents should be able to make their own decisions on what is in the best interest for their kids. If this vaccine works so well and we accept that, then why are we forcing others to go out and get it? If it protects you from the from the possibly getting hospitalized and certainly death, then why are we forcing others to go out and get it? That's the part for me that I, that I don't agree with. Well, it's also that it's also sort of an argument I don't quite understand because even though polio has been largely eradicated, we still require families to have their children get a polio vaccine, a tetanus vaccine, and the rest in order for them to be able to go to school. So if we require vaccinations for diseases that have largely been eradicated, why not require a vaccine or at least a mask to protect people against a virus that is very much alive and does seem to be increasing in terms of its potency and danger to children? It's not polio though, it's not a disease that's that's uh, been that's been killing certainly kids. Uh, but a, it has been killing level. some kids. There have been some kids that have died. There's certainly an increased number of younger teenagers who are being hospitalized now because of the Delta variant. And let's not downplay that as anything less than a tragedy. It absolutely is. But all these people have access to the vaccines. The vaccines that have been allegedly proven to go out and protect the individual from being hospitalized or the the possibility of death. If kids, parents, do and people want to go out and get the vaccine, they all have access to go and do that. That should be an individual choice though. Should that individual choice extend to uh, to teachers and staff? I mean, look, let's just suppose, let's buy your argument for a, for a second. Let's suppose that kids largely don't get the coronavirus. There's not a great deal of danger for them, even though some may be hospitalized. They can still, according to the science, transmit the coronavirus, the Delta variant to uh, to grownups, to adults who may be more susceptible. So if somebody's a teacher in a school and maybe they have got the vaccination, but they still want masks on everybody who's in that school to prevent them from being vulnerable. What's wrong with that? The teacher has the ability to go and get the vaccine right now. Everybody has the ability to go out and get it. And that is what's gonna protect them from hospitalization and potential death. We shouldn't be forcing kids to go out and and get the vaccine or go out and wear masks. Um, for, for well, let me stop you there though, can we force adults, can we force the teachers and the staff to get vaccines? No, I don't think so. They've got the choice to go out and do it and they've got a choice to go and um, take the vaccine or not, that's up to them. Then can we also say to a teacher or a staffer, look, it's your choice. If you don't wanna get the vaccine, then you are not welcome to keep your job at this particular school. I hope that it doesn't come to that. That would certainly be, I'd say, not the unions, the teachers unions prerogative. Because ultimately you wanna keep teachers that are good teachers in school, regardless of what they do on vaccines. We wanna be improving kids education. We don't wanna be forcing teachers out. We've had hundreds and thousands of teachers calling our phones at the Freedom Foundation, completely disagreeing with what the unions have been doing for the past 12 and 18 months. And some of them have unfortunately quit. These are people that you know had probably 20 years left in their careers and have gone and moved on to do other things. I think that's the real tragedy. And I don't think we're gonna be able to really weigh what the reaction to COVID has done for years to come because kids education has slipped rapidly during this time. Well, I think everybody would agree that obviously not having students in class, certainly, you know, kids, any any parent, as any of us who have children know, a Zoom class is not as effective as having a child in class learning from a teacher. But having said that, it's better than not having any class at all. And again, shouldn't there be some alternatives if 
if the Delta variant continues to spread and all these efforts to try to mitigate it are not working, sure, shouldn't we have the ability to have a very robust remote learning system again? And should we also have the ability for students and families that do wanna choose to send their kids to class to know that every measure is being taken to protect them? Yeah, I think that what we should be doing though, David, is expanding school choice. We should be expanding the ability for kids to be able to go and to get into different schools that best suits them. I think one of the problems that we've seen from the teachers unions is they're trying this one size fits all model. And as we've seen, that doesn't work across the country. We've got students in Alaska are very different than students in New York City, for example. We shouldn't be trying to put on this one size fits all model for kids. We should be allowing them to go and make educated decisions on what they wanna do in their education. Would you agree that the teachers unions, at least in other issues, have been successful to the betterment of society? And I think specifically of states like West Virginia and other states where they have the unions through their strikes and their action have been able to get teachers to be paid more for educating kids. That's a good thing, right? I think that, yeah, teachers that wanna go out and get paid more for exceptional work should absolutely go and do that. The problem is, again, it's this one size fits all model. My wife is a public school teacher and you know she's come home Try telling me the the horror stories of teachers that are not uh, representing the best interest of their kids, but they're un, unfireable. Where at the same time you have exceptional teachers that actually can't uh, go and uh, represent themselves in a contract negotiation uh, with their employer, even though they may be delivering a far better product than somebody else. I don't think that we need government unions in society anymore. I think that their days have gone. I think that they were certainly relevant at the dawn of time when we had kids dying in the coal mines and the steel mills and and all that type of stuff. But we don't have those working conditions anymore. You could say that they won in that regard. These teachers unions have become political entities where they export millions of dollars from teachers and other public employees and funnel that money into politics. That's the big problem that we have here. Well, that is certainly a debate for another day that we should get into. But real quickly here, before we go, how do you envision the next six months going in terms of schools, regardless of what we may want it to happen? What's your gut in terms of what will happen? Unfortunately, I think we're gonna start to see America shift into two sides of society where you have liberal states potentially locking down again, potentially forcing masks and hopefully not, but possibly even forcing vaccines. And those states that are wide open that are ran by Republicans. I don't think that's good for society at all. I think it separates America, but unfortunately that's what I see for see happening in America. I agree, I also think though it's not good for society to have a pandemic rage on as it is. Aaron With, he is the CEO of the Freedom Foundation. They take on the power of unions, interesting discussion. Aaron, about what's gonna happen with teachers unions. Thanks for joining us on the conversation, we appreciate it. Back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. What is it with some members of Congress and hiding their stock trades? Well, it appears that at least one Republican senator, two Republicans in the House are now under investigation because of a lack of transparency for their stock trades. Here to talk about this is Dave Leventhal. He's the deputy Washington bureau chief for Insider. Dave, you've done some of the reporting on this. Um, who's involved and what are they accused of? <laughs> Well, first of all, you, you name three of them. Uh, there, there are about 10 different people in Congress who we found this year, and I suspect that there could be more as the year goes on, who have violated a law that was passed about a decade ago called, appropriately enough, the Stock Act. And one of the key provisions of the Stock Act is that if you buy a stock, if you trade a stock, you're on the clock for 
45 days to disclose that stock publicly so that you, me, and everyone else can see it. And a number of members of Congress have tripped up on this law. And it's Pat Fallon, a congressman from Texas. It's Blake Moore, a congressman from Utah. Tommy Tuberville, senator from Alabama, the three Republicans that you cited. But also Democrat Tom Malinowski from New Jersey. Debbie Wasserman Schultz from Florida and several others who just simply, for one reason or another, have not been able to get this right. And what are some of the reasons that they give? A lot of them will say, well, I have an arm's length relationship with my own money. And I have a financial advisor who does my trades. That may be all fine and good, but the law really doesn't care. The law says that regardless of who's doing the trading, it's a member of Congress who themselves is on the hook to make sure that they are complying with that disclosure position, uh, disclosure um, provision of the Stock Act. And if they don't, they could be subject to a penalty, an investigation. If it's serious enough, it could go beyond that. And uh, the, the one thing to note is that the penalty, at least for initial violators, even if it's a huge, huge amount of stock that they're not disclosing on time, is only $200, so it's a bit of a slap on the wrist. And Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example, has been one of the members of the House and the Senate, Senate in her case, who said these penalties are not enough. We should not even allow lawmakers to be trading individual stocks. So there's a kind of a curious debate going on intramurally within Congress as to whether this should even be legal in the first place. Yeah, I mean, a $200 slap on the wrist really is tiny when you consider that some of these transactions were in the millions of dollars, right? Yeah, millions, even tens of millions of dollars. So in some cases, we're talking a relatively small amount of money, maybe a few thousand dollars, a few tens of thousands of dollars. But yeah, we easily get into the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars with some of these trades. And you know, somebody might ask, well, why does this matter? Who really cares if they're late making a stock disclosure when they're trading, if they disclose it? Six months after the fact, instead of 45 days, is the public really hurt by that? Should anyone care? I would point out that we found, at least in some of these stock trades, that they involve companies. For example, in the case of Representative Blake Moore from Utah, he sits on the House Armed Services Committee, okay? And he's trading Raytheon stock. Raytheon is a huge defense contractor. So you have companies that are going before committees, they are going before Congress, they are fighting for government contracts. They are sometimes spending themselves hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to lobby members of Congress and other aspects of the federal government. And then you have the lawmakers who sometimes are privy to information that the general public might not be about industries in general or even companies specifically. So there's a whole lot of interplay, financial intertwining that goes on with these companies and the members of Congress, which is kind of speaks to the point of the Stock Act in the first place that this should be transparent, that these transactions should be public, and that the public should have very, very quick access to this information so that it's not a year or two after the fact when it's being made. Very important when, for example, a pandemic happens and you might have lawmakers trading lots of stocks that are pandemic sensitive. We did see a lot of that. Lawmakers have bought Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer and Moderna stock and cleaning companies and you name it, you know, stocks that were definitely being affected and continue to be by the twists and the turns of the markets as the pandemic evolves. I'm so glad that you mentioned the beginning of the pandemic and some of those stock trades and investments that were made by some members of the US Senate after they received intelligence briefings that were available to them, but not the public. What ended up happening is some of those members of Congress who were caught. Uh, essentially buying or selling stock based on pandemic information that they got early on? 
Yeah, and there were several who were in not only the crosshairs of ethics officials within Congress, but the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the FBI. It became a criminal investigation or potentially therefore. And Richard Burr of North Carolina got caught up in this. David Perdue, the former senator from Georgia. Kelly Leffler, another former senator now from Georgia was also under a cloud. And then Tom Malinowski, who we reported earlier this year, made a flurry of trades during the beginning of the pandemic and early 2020. He didn't disclose any of the stock trades that he made. He chalked that up to, again, financial advisors, so that it was more of a technical matter. But lawmakers, they have to go through ethics training. It's not like this is some obscure thing that they've never heard about. And this stuff was all in the news when it was happening, especially with the investigations that you mentioned around the pandemic that ultimately didn't lead anywhere to criminal charges, but were definitely you know, pretty serious matters. You can argue whether there should have been charges or not. Ultimately, that did not come to pass, but the point is, if lawmakers are just simply hiding these transactions or not making these disclosures, whether it's on purpose or not, the public can't judge for themselves whether there is a potential conflict of interest here. The public can't judge for itself whether their member of Congress or any member of Congress is doing the right thing. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that there's a push by Senator Warren and others to make it essentially illegal for members of Congress to engage in these stock trades at all. There's the other argument, though, that, well, you know what, if we just enforce the transparency, then we can have the punishment be, say, what John Ossoff managed to do in Georgia to his Georgia opponent, I believe it was Senator Perdue, where he made this essential theme of the campaign that Perdue was there involved in insider trading based on the pandemic. And Perdue paid the ultimate political price. He lost the Senate race. Is that enough in your estimation to just have the transparency? And as long as people are aware of it, that's fine. Well, that was the argument about 10 years ago when the Stock Act was passed. Congress passed it. They make their own rules when it comes to matters such as this. It's like two football teams coming together and not having referees and just saying, all right, well, we're going to call our own fouls. That's effectively what they do here. But yeah, there, there can be a political price to pay. And the argument back then was that this would just kind of take care of itself. If there was a robust transparency aspect to all of this, Everyone would see what everyone else is doing. If somebody was doing something wrong, opponents could pick up on it in a political context, use it in campaign commercials, talk about it on the trail. But what we're seeing right now, especially this year, is that numerous members of Congress are just simply not adhering to those transparency and disclosure positions and provisions. So if everyone isn't playing by the same set of rules or not playing by them in the same way as other people, then you have some people who have an advantage over other people potentially. So the transparency regime, if you will, is sort of breaking down a little bit in ways that might be surprising to people had we been having this conversation 10 years ago. And for people who want more than transparency, they would describe this as just outright corruption. That if a member of Congress has access to be based on their committees or inside information about a company, how is it possible that they could therefore be profiting off of that through the stock market? Um, how widespread, Dave, are you just are you seeing is this in members of Congress? I mean, I know there's a lot of pressure, financial pressure on some members of Congress who come to Washington with not great financial means. There are others who are like, yeah, it's not a big deal. But is it very widespread? Well, you have a whole mixed bag of approaches that members of Congress take to their own personal finances. You have some members of Congress who just swear off this activity altogether, Democrats and Republicans who just don't trade individual stocks. They either put it in very conservative funds, bond funds, cash funds, money market, or they'll have exchange traded funds or mutual funds that they use, retirement accounts. 
pretty generic stuff. And that stuff doesn't even have to be disclosed on a rolling basis like individual stocks do. But you have plenty of other members, dozens and dozens of members who absolutely do trade and sometimes day trade in stocks of companies that, again, have lots and lots of business before the very federal government that the members of Congress are a part of. What do you see happening in terms of possibly an effort to tighten the legislation or to close some of the the loopholes as Senator Warren and others might describe it? Yeah, well, there's already a bill that's been filed this year. I would expect that Elizabeth Warren, based on what she's told us, and Premier Jayapal, the representative from the state of Washington, another Democrat, they're telling us that they're gonna file legislation later this year. So it's definitely something that absolutely could be in the debate. Of course, it's competing with many, many other issues, David. And we've got COVID, we've got infrastructure, we've got budgetary matters. So it's not going to likely rise to the top of the heap in terms of priorities in Congress. But it is getting a heck of a lot more attention than it has been this issue of members of Congress and their stock trades, especially because so many people have been violating the rules in the way and in the manner in which they have. What's been the reaction from me? You mentioned some of the, uh, the members of Congress who just don't engage in stock trades at all. They must be pretty upset when they see some of their fellow colleagues who are doing this sort of thing. Yeah, they're, they're rather muted in terms of uh, any criticism, uh, but uh, they basically say, well, the easiest way to avoid this is to not engage in the activity in the first place. You can't break a rule that doesn't apply to you. So that's been really more or less the philosophical approach that they've taken to this. Where do you see this going? You mentioned there's some legislation under consideration. Does it get pushed out, pushed aside because there's so many other priorities or is there actual action that you envision being taken? It's been tried before and it really hasn't just arisen to the top in previous congressional cycles. So I would expect that it gets debated. Elizabeth Warren sits on the Senate Finance Committee and she probably has a much greater standing this time around than she did before when she was in the minority. Democrats have control over the Senate, at least for now. So as a result, it may get more attention. Still pretty dubious as to whether it would actually pass and get to Joe Biden's desk at this point. Interesting stuff, Dave Leventhal, he's the Deputy Bureau Chief for Insider in Washington. Dave, thanks for doing this, we appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this edition of the conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield and the entire team at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster, thanks for watching.